Hello, everyone, and welcome to Think Bad, Do Good. We are immensely pleased to have Ted Harrington with us today. Hey, Ted, how are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And we're not we're not going to mention that you just got back from vacation in Mexico, which <laughs> doesn't make anyone on the internet feel any any envy at all. So Ted Harrington, not only is he the author of Hackable, and which is recently out. So Ted, your, when did your book come out? Came out in December of 2020. That's really recent. So we're not yet at a, at a year. So we'll say it just came out. Um, yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's a great title. I wish I'd gotten to it first. Um, but lo and behold, <laughs> Ted did. Um, Ted's an expert in cybersecurity strategy and in security assessments. And as a psychology major and a human, but more really like a psychology major and a cybersecurity expert, he, he's an expert in how attackers think, which is really cool. Um, and for viewers uh, who've listened to more than just this episode, it's Ted and I, in talking about this, discovered that we grew up like 10 minutes away from each other. So this is a happy reunion in many ways. Indeed. Yeah. So again, thanks, Ted, for joining us. Ted, I want to I wanna drill in, as a psychology person, it makes sense to me, naturally, that you want to you talk about how attackers think about ransomware and what they're after. And therefore, also how victims and defenders should think about ransomware and, and prevention. I just wonder if we could dive into that. And since since the world tends to think about external behaviors first, why don't we talk a little bit about external actors uh, to get us started? How where should we, how should we think about this, Ted? Yeah, maybe where we start is by asking the question more broadly, not, not just about attackers who are interested in ransomware, but more broadly, how do attackers think? How do they operate? Um, because this is one of the things I've noticed is a very there's very rampant misconceptions around how attackers think, and the attacker mindset is one that it's very difficult, I think, for the average person to sort of put their brain into that mode because it's sort of the opposite way of the way that most people think. Yeah, the way that most people think, like normal people, we look at a system and we try to understand how it works so that we can comply with the parameters of that system. So that's a very fancy way of saying, uh, if we use it as a metaphor, maybe like um, a line to get into an event, right? Most people will say, okay, here's a line. At the Once you go through the line, you get yourself into the event. I go to the back of the line. That's the way the line works. And what they're trying to understand is where's the back of the line? Is this the correct line? Um, do I have to pay something when I get to the end of the line? But that's the way most people look at systems. The way that attackers look at systems is they say, they, they ask those first few questions, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, what is this system? What's the goal of it? What are the components to it? How does it work? Where am I supposed to go? And then they look at it and they say, how can I make it do something different? Mm -hmm. And that really is sort of this fundamental overarching theme of the way attackers think is they first try to understand how something works and then they try to break it. They try to undermine it or make it work in a way that wasn't expected or anticipated. And that's where it gets really difficult as defenders is because what we have to do is we have to, as we're building something and we're integrating into that build process, our own assumptions about the way the thing will work, we then also have to do the exact opposite and say, what's the thing I'm not expecting someone to do? And that can be really, really hard because we all have our ways of thinking. We're sort of set in our modes. We assume people will do A, B, and C. And that's really the first defining trait is that what an attacker does, they look at a system, identify how it's supposed to work, and then try to say, can it do something different? Yeah. How would you put that practically when it comes to ransomware if you're a defender, particularly in like the healthcare sector? 
Yeah, so ransomware is interesting in its in its own right. I think it's a really I feel like whenever I talk about ransomware, I make it sound like this glorious thing because I'm I'm an entrepreneur and I'm really fascinated by innovation. And I think ransomware is such a beautiful type of innovation, even though it obviously delivers like really, really bad things. And I'm definitely not celebrating in any way people who uh, attack systems. But it's really fascinating that the idea of ransom existed for a very long time. And the idea of malware existed for a very, very long time. The idea of uh, encrypting whole systems existed for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful piece of innovation to take all of that and make it work together and say, how can we encrypt a system in a way that we command a ransom in order to decrypt it? I mean, that's so it's, fundamentally it's the, peanut that's butter, cool. it's the peanut butter and jelly of cyber attacks, in other words. Yeah, I mean, it's, yep. it's, it's rad, yeah. And <laughs> so when we think about who's motivated, who's interested in that, that type of attack, uh, it's certainly going to be the type of attacker who is uh, or it's going to be primarily the type of attacker who's motivated by profit. And because it's pretty clear to see why, you know, they want to attack a system in order to extract money out of that attack. That's fairly straightforward. Um, there are other types of motivations, though, for why an attacker would go after a system. And I don't know of a case that I can point to specifically, but um, it has to exist. And if it hasn't existed yet, it will exist where somebody will attack a system leveraging you know via ransomware but the profit that would be generated isn't the goal the goal is uh, the ransomware is intended as misdirection and the goal is something else like maybe it's a nation state actor who wants to disrupt some sort of system and they want to make sure that the attrib- you know it's attributed to someone else but fundamentally that's why what's interesting about um, you know people who are pursuing ransomware as an attack method is that they're trying in, in most cases they're trying to actually make money yeah. You know, what's really interesting as you were talking, it, it, I mean, f- folks talk and think about this all the time in national security, but if you're Vladimir Putin directing his various cyber capabilities, it's in your interest to have these ransomware gangs in within Russian territory wreaking havoc by doing things like colonial pipeline because of the simple fact that his intention is to have the public get distracted, is to have not only the American public, but also the people in charge in Washington to be distracted by this problem. So uh, just on the basis of, of, of trying to get into Vladimir Putin's head using the, what you just talked about, we should probably think about like, what else is he trying to do, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if, uh, if that connection exists. I'm certain that it must. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I can't point to any data that's definitively, um, you know, confirms what you just said. I'm sure that that type of thing, you know, exists. But I love the way that you asked the question because mm-hmm. what we really do need to be thinking is about why would a given attacker type do a certain thing? So in the case of a nation state, certainly it's to gain some sort of geopolitical advantage. And one way to do that is, of course, just like you said, to create distractions or misdirections and things like that. Um, there could be an attack where they they don't even make it known at all. Uh, these attacks actually are underway all the time, where a, a nation state compromises some system in another nation state and then just sits there and just listens and just sees what's happening. And, um, you know, they don't take any systems offline. They're not trying to disrupt it. That's obviously a very different outcome than if you are Mm -hmm. trying to disrupt the system. But I'm surprised we haven't seen yet. And we will see at some point. Uh, And maybe it's happened and I just don't know about it. But is the combination of a traditional uh, attack by sea, air or land combined with a cyber attack? Uh, So, for example, if someone could deploy an attack that 
makes the first responder system unusable. So the first responders can't respond at the same time that maybe uh, missiles are landing somewhere, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Now, in terms of the the practical work of application security, like the I think this this the the psychology of attackers is important. I think in for wargaming, like you just talked about. But how how would this kind of psychology play out in a practical sense within within a network attack? So in the so those I guess maybe are two slightly different questions about talking about network attack versus application security. But one thing that uh, to, I definitely, I definitely think we should point out is this idea that I believe, um, and there's, it's more than a belief, I guess, but is that your software really runs the world, right? I mean, every system in every company, every country are leveraging software in some way. And so in that regard, application security is really all security. Now, of course, it's mm -hmm. a subset of cybersecurity, no doubt about it. Um, mm -hmm. But application security even intersects with uh, network security. And the way we want to be thinking about uh, AppSec is that fundamental basis that there is that this sort of software element to every single system. And to truly defend a system, we need to understand all the different ways it could be attacked. And software is just one of those ways. The human certainly is another way. The network is another way. There's plenty of ways we can think about it. Uh, app, uh, the application uh, aspect is just one, but software runs runs the world, and we have to be thinking about the fact that this is where attackers are really focusing today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly coming out of Solar Winds, right, being one of the best examples of uh, an application enabled attack. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things we've been thinking about a lot at Attack IQ is our two two words: readiness and resilience. And there's a difference between the two, um, and we think about how to achieve both, obviously. Um, and I'd love to I'd love to talk to you about this from your perspective as somebody who thinks about attackers and, and does application security. How do you think about these two concepts of readiness and resilience? So I know there's obviously very formal, specific definitions to these two terms, but the way that I think about them when in their most simple sense is this idea that readiness is really about are you prepared for an attack? Like have you done the things in order to uh, essentially prevent an attack being successful? And resilience is, a, in a sense, it's a verification of that readiness effort. What happens in the attack? How well did you actually fend it off? Or how well did you bounce back? Or how well did you, uh, is the extent of the impact actually mitigated and minimized? And so they're two related ideas. They're two, they are slightly different, but they're both related. And the way that I'd like to think about these is that we really need to have them both. Uh, and then there's, of course, the element as well, which is how do we now respond? So, you know, mm -hmm. there's how do we prevent an attack? How do we detect it's underway? And then how do we respond uh, once it is underway? Yeah, these are all good questions. So what are some steps that you would recommend for achieving like optimal cybersecurity readiness? Well, if we can think about it in the context of the original question that you started the interview out with, which mm -hmm. is how do we think like an attacker? I mean, that's that's where I'm always advocating that we start, which is to look at a system and to really apply that sort of malicious thinking to essentially first answer three really important questions. The first question is, what do we want to defend? So in every organization, there's some tangible things you want to defend. Maybe that's literally money or data. And then there's some intangible things you want to defend too, like uh, reputation of the brand. So mm -hmm. really enumerating what are all those things we want to defend 
That's the first question every organization needs to answer. The second is, who do we want to defend against? So that's where we think about, well, who are the different attackers? Um, we started talking about uh, some of the external attacker types. There's also the insider threat. How are each of these different uh, groups, even within these subgroups, how are they motivated differently? What different resources do they have? And who do we need to focus our energies on? Because you can't defend against everybody all the time. So that's the second question. Who do we want to defend against? And then the third question they want to answer is, where will we be attacked? So this is our collection of attack surfaces, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, where can someone or another system interact with this system? And once we identify those three things, what it does, or once, once we answer those three questions, what we're able to now do is we're able to prioritize where to invest resources, time, effort, money, person power, et cetera. Because as I mentioned a moment ago, you, we can't defend against everything all the time. So we really have to be selective and we have to prioritize. Mm -hmm. And that's what it helps us do. And that's where everyone should start. Do you, have a, do you have any stories about customers or clients of yours that you've seen achieve cybersecurity readiness? And what were some of the takeaways you had from that experience? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, it's funny because uh, the hard part about security is if you do it right, the story is typically not that exciting, right? It's like, and then nothing yep. happened, <laughs> um, un, you know, unfortunately. Um, but the way that I think you can measure the absence of a bad thing is when you found things before uh, the attacker did. And so uh, here's an example maybe of uh, one specific story, but this type of story plays itself out every day with the type of uh, companies that were in the fortunate position to serve. So they were building this uh, particular software system that doesn't matter what the system did, but the point is that there was a combination of issues that we found were, um, were problematic in the system. But what was really interesting was that it was the combination of the issues that made it really a problem. So the first issue we found is what's called information leakage. And that's where a system gives up information that it shouldn't. So in this case, it meant that um, any user of the system could identify any other user of the system. It's not really that bad of a problem. You can't even directly exploit it. That's just, you know, like it sounds like information uh, leaking. But where the problem comes into play is when there was a second issue we found, which is where the authorization model is broken. Now, authorization is essentially when a system verifies is someone or something allowed to do a certain thing. And so in this case, the way that it authorized whether or not a user could change permissions, so change passwords, it would ask for information. Just like any time you've ever changed your password, right? Usually you have to supply your sure. current password to get the new one. Yeah, totally. But that's not the way this system worked. The way this system worked was to change your password, you had to supply your user ID. In theory, every user only knows their own user ID and thus you can't change someone else's. But when you combine these two issues, because of the information leakage, it meant that every uh, an attacker could enumerate every user and then use that information to change every user's credentials. So the combination of those two, what that essentially means is that any user of the system could completely dominate the entire system, take over every single account, do whatever they wanted with the whole system. And these are the kinds of things that uh, there's not really a great tool. There's no tools that can automate how do you connect those type of dots. You need sort of a creative problem-solving human to connect those dots. But this is the kind of stuff that attackers are always looking to do, is they're trying to say, well, the system's supposed to do a certain thing. Can I make it do something else? 
And this was a great example of where, because this particular organization had invested the time, effort, and money to try to find those types of issues, they were able to now find it and actually eradicate it. Hmm. So when it did actually happen, you mean? So when the intruder broke in, they'd already prepared for it and they were ready to stop it? Well, they made it so that no one could break in. Uh, so they, so mm-hmm. I mean, that in a way, that's, that is part of readiness, right? Is can you, as part of readiness, can you remove, uh, or let's maybe let's use a metaphor. If there's a building and you're worried about, you know, a thief breaking into the building, you want to say how many of these doors can I uh, get rid of? Like, can I literally with bricks make it so that this is no longer a point of access? And then other points of access, we have other types of defenses because they still need to be points of access. So those are the that's the way we want to think about readiness. Can we narrow the ways that an attacker can get in and then focus our energies to make sure we're prepared when the attacker tries to get in there? Good. No, I like that. Now, flipping to resilience. Um, so let's assume that, that um, well, rather than me leading the witness, tell me <laughs> about how you think about resilience, practically speaking, um, from an investment standpoint, a capability standpoint, or a strategy standpoint. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, resilience is this idea of how well a a system can actually withstand an attack. And the idea that I think is really important around resilience has to do with defense in depth. So for any members of the audience who aren't familiar with this, defense in depth is essentially where you add layers of defense in order to do two things. You want to first minimize the likelihood that an attacker is successful. And then two, reduce the impact in the event that they are successful. And what's really cool about defense in depth is that it's often lamented that for um, that the attacker only ever needs to be right once. And the defender needs to be right every single time. But defense in depth sort of flips that on its head because now it says, well, the attacker needs to be right every single time in order to evade detection. And the defender only needs to have a, a, a flag triggered once in order to stop the attack. And so I think the metaphor here, if we think about something like, like a uh, imagine a medieval castle. Uh, we've, we've all, we're all familiar with medieval castles. We've been to one or we've you know, seen one on something like Game of Thrones or something like that. And you've got things sure. like you've got the moat, you've got a drawbridge. Or we live in one in my case. Uh, I mean, oh, that's, that's how I if know. we're lucky enough to live in one, who knows? <laughs> Sir, <laughs> Sir Jonathan. Um, you. You've got, you know, archers on the turrets and you've got uh, interior, you know, perimeter walls and you've got the guards themselves. And you've got all these defenses that make it that much harder for an outside attacker to actually kill the king. And that's really what defense in depth is like. And in the point of resilience, if we use this uh, castle metaphor and we extend it a little bit, this would be like the, uh, the enemies have attacked the castle. They actually broke down the drawbridge. You know, they got across the moat. They got into the castle walls. But, and they even killed some of the you know, high-ranking nobles, but they didn't get to the king because the king was in the, you know, his special fortified compartment and he had a special private guard around him. So they couldn't quite get to that. So mm-hmm. it um, it didn't completely mm-hmm. eliminate the, the the success of the attack. You know, people did still die, and the perimeter was still breached. But the most valuable thing, which was in this case the king, in my completely made up metaphorical situation, um, it's good. It's working. We're with you. <laughs> the king uh, did not lose his life, and so that would be a very successful example of where this system was resilient against attack. Because the thing that they cared the most about, the system cared most about protecting, successfully protected that. And that's the way that we want to think about it. That's really interesting. I, 
I'm going to push back a little bit on this notion because I've been caught between these two words, readiness and resilience, with the exact capability that you just described. I used to think of it as a resiliency capability, but now I think of it because I've adopted a sort of assume breach, post-breach investment scenario. I think about that defense in depth much more within a readiness narrative. And the way I extend the resiliency story, and I, you know, it's a little bit of theology here, so it kind of doesn't matter. Um, but the way I think about resilience is just two points. One is, um, I remember having dinner with uh, an executive from Google and an executive from Facebook in 2016, um, back when I still use Facebook, actually, I still use Google. And they talked about how, we talked about resilience and they talked about how they back up all their data, at least then, on laser discs. Mm and put them into cold storage every night, which reminds me of like the ending sequence in, I think it was um, uh, one of the Indiana Jones movies, definitely like Raiders of the Lost Ark probably, where like they find the Ark and then they put it in like this really dark mm-hmm. warehouse. So, you know, imagine every night some poor person at these two companies back. So like when I think about resilience, it's like data's gone. It's finished. Mm-hmm. It's been attacked. And now we have to do cold storage laser discs. And the other way that I think about resilience is, from a military standpoint, because as you know, I worked with the military for a long time in cybersecurity. It's like um, Admiral Rogers, who used to run Cyber Command, if the, he trained his submarines in the 80s, if there was an EMP that knocked out all communications, he was ready to have his sailors sail blind. And so when I think about resilience, I go to this sort of all defenses have failed story. And so I have a kind of, to mix metaphors, I have a little bit of a firewall between those two words when it comes to defense capabilities. Mm-hmm. But again, I think it's probably a matter of theology. Yeah. Um, on that. Well, I think that's a really fascinating example that we could use to describe it as the way you're describing it. And I'm, I'm not so married to the specific definitions on, on these two terms, um, but I, I agree with the way that you described it too. I don't think uh, I have no, no issue with that. But if we think about uh, – I'm trying to create drama here, Ted. <laughs> We're two guys from this, like basically Let's the same town. Let's fight it out. <laughs> um, if you think about what happened with Maersk during the NotPetya attack, I think that's a fantastic example that illustrates what you just described where, you know, Maersk, the largest, I think they're the largest shipper of goods in the world. Their whole system was down for some indeterminate period of time, but they were able to get back online because they had one site that not intentionally was offline. It was something, there's a power outage or something. So for whatever reason, that system was uh, unavailable amidst this attack. The whole rest of the company became completely unusable. But because of this one system that they had unintentionally essentially backing up the whole company, they're able to rebuild from that. And then operations were able to uh, to get back on track. And so they were able to rebound from that attack way, 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 way faster than mm-hmm. had they had to deal with you know the entire company being down. So it's a good example, I think, of what you're saying. Yeah, I love that example. And of course, now the history books and cybersecurity storytellers all over the place will be like, Folks, please at least have uh, this sort of capability backed up. Now, the, my favorite example actually from this comes from fiction, which is the opening of Battlestar Galactica when the Cylons attack. The, now I'm really narrowing the audience attention span on this. Is you know the, the Battlestar Galactica at that point was like a, was about to become a museum. It was kind of like the USS Enterprise of of in the carrier strike group. It was so old that um, the systems were out of date, and so the the cyber attack that the Cylons conducted against the the uh, the fleet didn't work on it because it was so old, um, but I think you know this is companies like Rubrik and others like it have have backup capabilities and cognitively this is just as I've been thinking about this over the last couple of months is like I've tended to bundle sort of backup 
and, and into the resilience universe, but I'm looking for more to populate it. So uh, mm-hmm. this is something maybe maybe we could circle back the wagons and think about it at some other point. Yeah. Um, this is a fascinating conversation. Now, the one thing I want the audience to hear about is, so, so you majored in psychology. Um, obviously, you graduated like last year, of course, from college. Uh, <laughs> but tell me, how did you get into this field? And what are some lessons that you've that you've gained um, outside of just how the attacker thinks from your studies yeah. in psychology in the field overall? Yeah, I think people are often really surprised when they find out that I studied psychology because they're like, wait, don't you have to study computer science in order to be in the field of ethical hacking? And um, uh, many, many people in ethical hacking do study computer science. Uh, I studied psychology because I was always and continue to be really fascinated by why people make the decisions that they do, what motivates them. And so I really specialized in my study of psychology and actually abnormal psychology, studying like criminal psychology and stuff like that, because I feel like if you can understand sort of the outliers or the people who go against sort of societal norms, it maybe helps you understand society a little bit better. And but at the time, I didn't know that was what was going to lead me to this incredibly fulfilling career in the ethical hacking space. But definitely having that sort of uh, that, I guess mindset that looks at things the other way where i wanted to kind of look at things in the opposite direction i mean that is Mm -hmm. the way ethical hacking works so i ultimately got into security in a sense i feel like my life was guiding me to it in a way i mean i have a few guiding principles that are you know guide my various decisions that i make and they're things like you know two hard things that matter in the service of others and work to get better every day and that's like that's security in a nutshell and when I got introduced to uh, the guy who, would, who is now my business partner, and we started talking about security, this was like 10 years ago, uh, it, was, it was a no-brainer that this is what I wanted to do. And so that's how I got into it. And I, I like sharing that story, especially with um, when I speak to students, so whether that's undergrads or even high school students, because almost anybody who thinks about ethical hacking as a career and isn't already in it, they, mm-hmm. they generally think the ship has already sailed. They're like, oh, I can't, it's too late. I don't have X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, well, let me tell you a little bit of a story about a guy who didn't get into security until 10 years ago. And then fast forward, mm-hmm. you know, wrote a, a best-selling book on the topic. Like you can do it. You just, it's just a matter of, can you learn something? Um, it's, uh-huh. it's definitely not too late. Yeah. Well, I think I loved hearing about the values that you said. What was the first do hard things uh, in service to others. And the third one was, I want to say excellence, but that get, wasn't it. What was the third yeah, one? Get, get better every day. Yeah, I mean, if you're following those principles, um, and you're heading into a, into a field like this, then then and you have a positive attitude like you do, like things will work. So those are good lessons to students. So let's. So you met someone ten years ago. You met your current business partner ten years ago. And that was that your first job in security. Uh, directly in security. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we've been building this company for ten years since. We're actually just this weekend. I literally get on a plane tomorrow to fly to Baltimore. We're bringing the whole company in from where everybody is and. There are disparate, you know, we've got offices on the West Coast uh, as well as in Baltimore, and then people are remote too. And we're having a big pool party on Friday to celebrate, you know, 10 years since we uh, since we started doing what we're doing right now. That's wonderful. And obviously, I would add a, I would add a fourth point, although if you add four, you have to add a fifth because otherwise nobody will remember four. It sounds like you've sought out good people. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah, I might have to add that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I felt like I don't know if this has been the experience for other people in other career fields or not, but I had this really intense emotional response to graduating from college. I think you know, most people who, if you enjoyed undergrad, you probably have an uh, intense emotional reaction to it. But I remember having this like really intense 
vivid sadness, not just that it was like, oh, the party's over, but more like there was that, but also that, um, you know, the academic experience when you're surrounded by incredibly smart people, it's very intellectually stimulating and it forces you to grow because you see how smart everybody is around you. And then I graduated. That's what college felt to me. And then I graduated and I can't say that I felt that way about the broader world. I was like, oh man, the real world, like where'd all the smart people go, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and I don't mean that in an insulting way to like, you know, anyone that's, you know, I'm not trying to insult him. What I'm trying to say is like the density of the academic experience. I didn't feel it anymore. But then fast forward to when I discovered security as uh, as a field. And I found that academic uh, intellectual stimulation again. And I was like, yes, this is where I want to be. These are my people because you're surrounded by such smart people, you know, constantly pushing to get better. And this is bigger than just ethical hacking. I think this is most corners of just cybersecurity. And I've... I don't know why I'd want to be in any other field if you get to be around smart people all day, every day. Yeah. I I, mean, I love this. I love this conversation. I think like that, this is extremely rich and it's really about purpose, right? Like I remember also when I graduated college, it was the sense of, you you know, you tell if you, if you've been a diligent service focused person, you self-selected into a group of people in college because there's, it's like tailor-made for you. There's a bunch of other people trying to figure out the world, but then when it ends, there's no immediate path, which is probably why people start thinking about graduate school, like probably too quickly when they graduate, yeah. right? It's mm-hmm. like they're looking for another mission, a sense of purpose. But the hard work actually is finding out how you yourself align your values with good people, if you're public service minded, to help solve hard problems. Totally. And that, um, to a degree, right, the internet has given a generation of people a mission, right? Like when you when we when I first started, I was like in the 9-11 generation. So 9-11 gave me my first mission. And then as the internet expanded and became more vulnerable, that was kind of a second mission. Um, and now for kids graduating now, obviously they're thinking about public health, demography, pandemics, things like that. But that's what this sounds like when you're talking. It's like you found a purpose yep. and a good group of people and you could pour yourself into it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I practice gratitude every morning. And uh, one of the things that I constantly am reminding myself how grateful I am is that I have been able to find a uh, a career that's really defined by a passion. I do feel that what I do matters and we are solving hard problems and I get to be surrounded by other people trying to do that as well. And And I hope that in other industries, other career fields, I hope that people feel that way too, but I don't know if that's true or not. And but I can know that if I look around, you know, go to a wedding, right? And you start talking to the different people who now you're meeting for the first time because you're all brought together, not because you're friends, but because of the bride and groom. And you start asking people what they do. And you can see the people who have that sort of spark in their eye. They're like, I'm, I'm doing something bigger than myself. And the people who are like, I get a paycheck. And, uh, and I think that for myself, definitely, and I feel like a lot of people in security, it's, you know, it's a mission where it's a passion. Yes. Yeah. Ash Carter, who I used to work for um, before he became Secretary of Defense, I worked for him when he was the Deputy Secretary. He used to say, um, you need to tie yourself to something bigger than yourself. And he'd started out as an astrophysicist, not an astrophysicist, he was a physicist. Um, and he was working on uh, like theoretical physics or missile missile defense physics. And he got brought in just to study um, one of the ballistic missile defense capabilities that the Defense Department was working on in the 80s. And when he did that, he thought, I can apply my knowledge to something bigger than myself. So I like that phrase. And I think that's something that people should always revisit when they're having 
lulls in their career? Like what's the next thing that I can tie myself to that extends me beyond my narrow field of vision? Yeah. And I think we're lucky, cool. right? You and I, that we, it, it almost feels like a privilege to be able to say that because I do, you know, going back to that, maybe painting the scenario of you're at a wedding and you meet the person next to you and that person like maybe isn't that excited about their, their career. Like it's, once you have, once you found your passion or your purpose, like it's easy to say like, yo, follow your, be excited about it, whatever. But I can totally put myself in the shoes of that person who maybe they're moderately to very well compensated, but they just hate what they do. And they're like, well, I do have bills to pay. So like they wouldn't pay you if it wasn't, you know, if it was fun, they wouldn't pay you. And so I get that that's mm. kind of hard to maybe break out that rut, but maybe if there's something that someone can take away from this conversation that you and I are having, it's that you can actually be compensated uh, well and enjoy what you're doing and feel that you're pursuing a larger mission. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we are privileged. We're extremely lucky in, in many, many ways, right? Um, it's pretty obvious by looking at us yeah. um, and hearing hearing us talk. But uh, that's a great parting shot, I think, or a parting parting comment. For anyone who's listening in, like, and it, it's hard work too, right? Like, it's the first project you try to to find that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose may not be the first thing, but you got to keep at it. Totally, yeah. Awesome. Well, it's great, great to have you on. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and um, thank you for first speaking to us through Purple Hats and then joining us again. Now, just I don't have a copy of your book because I'm at my mom's <laughs> house, but here, here's Hackable, everyone. <laughs> go and Wait, buy it on Amazon.com. I might have one. I should, I should have one. There we go. Yeah. yeah, you should. Wait, you you're go. the author. There it is. Good work. Look at that. A, Got some... Yeah, there's no purple on there, which we can forgive you for this time. <laughs> maybe maybe the maybe a special edition or something. We'll put some purple on there. Yes. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Sign us up. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Ted Harrington, good to see you. Yeah, thank you. 